Hi, welcome to Everyday Wild. Uh, this is the first episode of the podcast. My name is Daniel Havey and my co-host is Agravane McLaughlin. G'day, Dan. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking today with Ghana elder Uncle Lewis Yolaburka O'Brien. Uh, we've been very fortunate that he generously gave half an hour or so to discuss the woolly wagtail and other stories and, and his own knowledge around that and his own experience around being brought up in community, living with different types of knowledge. I just want to say a little bit about the title of the uh, podcast. So the idea with Everyday Wild is we're interviewing people in a way that brings out stories about the wilderness all around us, but also the wilderness within us. So it's the wildness of birds and cockroaches wind and the sea, but also of our minds, our relationships and the things that surround us that we don't necessarily understand or know properly, but uh, have influence. So it's looking to know things a little bit differently, I suppose. And the interview, I think, with Uncle Lewis is is kind of relevant to, to that interest. We're on Ghana land, so I would like to just acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. Let's have a listen to the interview and we'll talk a little bit more about that stuff uh, when we come back. Thanks for joining us today, Uncle Lewis. Um, You were talking before about the experience Growing up on Port Pierce, yeah, yeah, with a really wagtail. Oh yes, I, I, yeah. See, you're in a different setting there. You're really a, a community when you're on a mission. It's with 300 people. You know the lot. Mm. You know what's going on. You hear the conversation. You're all intermingling in different sectors. You go and see different people for different reasons. So you pick and choose who you go to for storytelling or something like that. But then. The additive is that we have this bird that we watch all the time. It's a woolly wagtail. We call it a chitron. Chitron. It's a pitchindara word, you know. Okay. And um, so I don't know why we do that because we must use a common word. And we all know what we're talking about. But anyway, when he comes up to you, you know automatically what he's going to say to you because you know that he. He's a bringer of bad news to us, you know, and that's what we expect. Yeah. And so when he comes to you, you think you must, your brain must automatically sit through all the names and who's ill, and you think, oh, Charlie's died. You find out Charlie has died because it's in your system. You know, you're trained to do this. It's like a, another realm you're in, which is rather interesting. Like you're in tune with the world, you know, the universe, I call it. So you, you get an in tune thing. So you're living in a different life. You're living a life of not talking and you learn all these different lessons about what people are doing and you're working out where they're going. You're studying people. You see, you really do a study and it's, a, it's not an easy subject to talk about really because people don't really know what you're talking about because you have to really live the life and you grow up with it and it's like uh, immersion. See, when you're immersed in it, you all automatically do it, and it works. And, and see, when you try and explain it, which is a funny twist to me, when you start, people say, how do you do this? You go, do you think, how do I do that? 
But when you start thinking about it and get logics comes into it, you lose the skills. And you think, well, I'll be blown. And then I thought, I'm not going to explain anything to anyone anymore because you lose a lot of skills because people think it's all woofy and there's very few happen. And you think, oh, yeah. But when you're living it, you know it happens more than yeah. enough. And, and it's really fascinating life you're leading because it's totally different. Because then we see the difference when we go to the city. I can tell you the difference. So when I went to the city then, I lived in town with my aunt. Yeah. She came off the same mission. See, we lived together on the same place in the same house again. And anyway, when, we're, when I was in the kitchen one day, this actually shows the difference. Because I'm looking out the window over her shoulder. And she said, yes, I've been looking at that bird for two days myself, Lewis. She knew what I was looking at. Yeah. See that? She didn't have to talk, so yeah. you know. Yeah. And then I said, have you? And she said, yes. And then she said, Lewis, isn't it a funny thing? When we're in the, in the mission, she said, we know automatically, don't we? But you notice what happens? That bird sits on the, that fence and you know he's got something to say or nothing, but he's not indicating anything, so you just know he's in between zones, right? So what he has to do then, because you've lost the skills, he has to come up and say, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm around, I'm going to try and tell you something. And you think, yeah, but what, you know? And so you know someone's passed away, but you don't know who. And so that's the difference. So you suddenly see this life where you're all a community and you all know and you're all in the loop sort of thing. And then when you're divorced from all that, living in a house, separated, knowing very few people, intermingling on a daily basis, you lose all that extra steps and you suddenly see the difference. And because you suddenly see the bird acts differently towards you. Because when he, when he, is naturally on a mission, he just wags his tail and, and just jumps around in front of you. But when you go to the city, he jumps straight at you. He yeah. said, hey, look at me. I'm trying to tell you something here, you know. Yeah. And, and yet you don't, know, you don't know really what he's going to tell you because you know when he does, you know someone's passed away, but you don't know who. See, it's the so same thing. So, it's, so you see these variances and, and see logic beats a lot of this stuff and explanations so really, if you want to do these things, you've got to just do them and not worry about explanations or any sort of thought in that line. Yeah. You've just got to be, as they say, a believer. Yes. But it's more than belief. It's really it's a knowing. You, you know what's going on because you don't have to be told. You, you just know because all the lessons you learn is about this knowing. It's, it's different lessons because they're not easy to explain all the lessons, but see, they're done in different ways. It's not one lesson, it's multiples of lessons you're learning that gives you this skill. Yeah. Because it's, everyone thinks it's easy, but to get there is very difficult because you have to do all this. As a kid, you don't know all this stuff, you just do it. And it works. Yeah. But then when people start to say, how do you do this now, how do you know that? Well, then it ruins the whole deal because logic comes in and logic says you can't do that. And so this is where the well, world gets us into this funny zone. Western logic says that. <laughs> yeah. Logic destroys more stuff than people realise, actually. Yeah, yeah, the, the interaction between peoples and all this sort of stuff because and uh, it's uh, not about reasoning, it's about just doing and accepting and, and it's a belief and, and really it's, it's really putting all the lessons you've learned together and it makes it, it that's the logics of it in the background, isn't it? That's it. See, the logic just ruins a lot of things. And see, it's not always true, the logical conclusion sometimes, which people don't realise. And sometimes they try and work it out and it's, it's not logical. Yeah. See, because... Uh,
because even I've had this, because I used to work as a theatre one. Yeah. And the engineer said to me one day, Lewis, he said, where's the place up with these machines? We dare not say that to anyone. Well, they think we're nutty. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. And, it, it, and then when you see some of the stuff that happens, you get a shock. Yeah. Because you suddenly really, it does affect in, in, in awkward ways and unknown ways to you. And when it happens, you think, how did that happen? And then when you find out the logics of it, you go, What? And I didn't know that. <laughs> and you think, well, I'll be blown because it's hidden from you because uh, you have to learn it through experience. And yeah. you suddenly find out that it, it, it really it does affect it in very strange ways. Yeah. And uh, it's because of those gadgets you make which are unnatural. And so you see all these things in life. But I've seen it so many times. And then people misinterpret stories they read. And so we learn about thinking, which is rather interesting. And people in modern times don't learn to think, which is really peculiar. And see, they just think we, we see we lasted sixty thousand years. Well, not thinking. Well, I think they got the story wrong. And so we're, we're not interested in telling you about that because why? Why should we prove to you anything? You believe what you want to believe. You believe we're these aimless wanderers and do nothing, and yet you think, how come we last for 60,000 years? I woke up as a kid, I thought, it's a long time. I said, how did we last that long? And then you suddenly realise it's changing all the knowledges, all the skills from all the 300 groups in this country. And that's how we said, well, we didn't survive just because we sat on our own. We shared knowledge and experiences and, and different things with other people, and that's what gives you the extra skills. Yeah. See, because if you want to find someone, who would you get as a tracker? You'd get an Aboriginal bloke. You couldn't get anyone better. You could get someone equal too, but you couldn't get anyone better. Go and read Jimmy James and see what the skills he had, how he traced people and tracked them. Of course, then we've got an additive that people are not aware of. Uh, Aboriginals have got uh, bionic eyes, which is a hidden thought there. See, there's extra skills that most people, I think, had in the past. But what destroyed that was reading in dim light and reading books, you concentrate your lens too long and mucks up your eyesight. Ah. See, that's what's happened to people over time. Yeah, See, it's losses. Geez, that's no the same today. Looking at TV screens or computer screens, you lose your eyesight and ability because you lock the lens and it loses its flexibility, and that's what destroys eyesight. You know, you see that yourself. So I've seen it happen to me. I've seen I've looked at books too long and screens and. Yeah, no, yeah. Going back to the, um, the Willy Wagtail story, I'm just wondering if, if I, this is where I take from it, the experience of hearing Willy Wagtail, or actually it's not hearing, is it? It's, no. it's being open to communication. Well, you're just watching him and what he's watching. That happening point Pierce, that communication was part of the whole fabric of, of relationships between you and the place, you and your community. That's it. Even more than that, that I probably don't quite understand, but um, when you move down here, that's all kind of uh, yeah, been dispersed. It's, it's dispersed, yeah, because, see, so yeah. you're not looking at the scars anymore because you've got a roof over you, you know? Yeah. You're limited to rooms and closures and yeah. you're not experiencing outside all the time. You're not noticing the wind changing or anything. So you, you don't take notice of any of those things. Whereas <clears throat> when you're living in those communities because of, they've done it for thousands of years, you're noticing everything. You're collecting all that information all the time. You're collecting wind directions and you're watching the sun go down, you're watching the stars and, and so you, you suddenly see the connections and you do that. You seem to connect the stars with the ground and interact and 
it's all this intertwining of things, you know, mm. it's lovely. Yeah, and I, and I've uh, you know experienced it both sides, and and I think some of it's just magic. It's lovely, you know. Yeah. And see, yeah. I suddenly, I suddenly see I get a shock sometimes, you know, that even my grandkids say funny things to me. They said to me one day, "Pop, why are those two stars near the moon?" I said, "That's autumn." I knew that automatically, and I thought, "Well, I'll be blown." See, that's in your psyche because, uh, and then I saw sort of funny twists with that because that was in April. And I knew that when the time changed, because I know the 1940s, because I know gardeners said birds don't know how to fly and flowers don't know when to bloom. And that was in 1940. And our dictionary was written in 1840, and that showed the change. The season jumped one month. See, autumn's in March now. See what I mean? Okay. It jumped one month back. And so you see these changes. And so when they, the grandkids said that to me, I thought, that's April. And I thought, oh, I'll be That showed a month's change in season, you know? Yeah. And so that, because our dictionary was written in 1840. So that gives you that connection, see? And then it's 1940, I saw the, see, we listened to the gardeners, see, see what they said? Birds don't know where to fly. And then everyone woke up, oh, it's no longer April, it's March. It was a jump. And people woke up in 1940 about that. Well, that's what they picked up straight away. See, the gardeners pick up. See, he's out in the garden watching all these things, flowers blooming, and yeah. and he's noticing, why aren't the flowers blooming now? See, something's no. gone, some change has occurred. Yeah. And so the seasons jump because when you look at it, you're in different parts of the universe and different relationships to the sun and all these things moving all the time, isn't it? And then you've got planets lining up. This, see, beyond your system sometimes, you just know things are changing. You don't know all these factors till the astronomers tell you all these things about planets and sure. suns and all those things. But then, see, that's what you've got to do, collect all the information from all the different sectors, don't you? Yeah. See, when you put it all together, then it, it gives you a picture. Yeah. Why things are doing this and why is that? Because you see that it's a different time and different positioning because we're doing so many thousand miles now this way and so many thousand that way. And, and you know, this, if we're going around the Earth, I mean, the Earth's going around the sun a thousand miles an hour, you know what I mean? We're travelling all the time. It's, it's multiple travelling directions, isn't it? Well, we can't really put it together properly if we're indoors a lot, can we? No, you can't. And not only that, the way you've been taught to think is mucks you up. Yeah. See, we know that because we must have went through it because you think one step at a time. And it sounds very jolly and it is very good, but it's limited. Yeah. See, and everyone wakes up and they get out of it and so you, you see that even with nature. See, nature does a doubly. And the best case is the bloke from Adelaide, which is, tells the story. Bragg. Bragg won the, he's the youngest Nobel Prize when he run it with his father for crystallography. Okay. But he went to London to become head of the uh, Royal Institute. And he said, I taught light with a wave for three days and it was a pulse for two days. And then I woke up with a pulse and a wave. Huh. See, two things. And that's what our people woke up. There's two things you've got to think about. Yeah. And see, it's a bar. It's, it's, an, it's not perfect. There's no perfect system. No. But what you should be doing, jumping from ones to twos. Mm. But most people just do the one. And they yes. think it's the be and end all, like the Big Bang. It's to me, that annoys me hearing that because you only have to look at the universe today and they'll tell you there's Big Bangs and black holes going on all the time. Mm. So really, it's a falseness to me because it's only the way they've been taught. It's got to be a beginning. 
well, it may not be so. You see what I mean? Because when you look at it, if it's still continuing on today, why has it changed? You see what I'm getting at? No. Oh, well, that's, yeah. see, I can look at things like that and see <laughs> that, see, I can see that how they can misinterpret the speed, like saying the universe expanding. Well, it could be a misinterpretation because when you have a black hole, all the particles are going into the black hole, that's speed up, you know, light and, and, and uh, movement. Well, then that could they could misinterpret that, can't they? They think the universe is expanding. You just, I say all the people rushing to the black hole. You yeah. see what I mean? So we, we can view things in a different way when you, you learn this different method of looking at things. So it may be right, may be wrong, but that's a nice little argument, isn't it? I'm just wondering uh, if you might also tell a little story. I wish I could remember it. Um, that you told it was about birds flying higher. Oh, yeah, the birds. <laughs> oh, where the birds all met on the plane, yes. That's right. And that's right. And then they said, what should we do? And they said, well, let's have a competition. We'll see if who can fly the highest. So they said, right. And they all agreed. So then all the birds took off. They all started to rage and height over the over the ground and get higher and higher. Then, as they got higher and higher, a lot of birds started dropping off and said, "I've reached my limit." And until the end, the, the highest flying bird was a pelican. And the pelican looked around. And he said, "I'm the highest," and he said, "I think I'll come down." And as he started to drift down, a little little um, uh, blue wren jumped out from under his wing and he said. I'm flying the highest, and he jumped up after <laughs> Anyway, all the people on the ground, all the birds saw this, and they said, when the birds landed, they said, what are we going to about to do, little blue wren? Look at what he did. He tried to lie to us and cheat by saying he flew to highest, but he was taken aloft by the pelican. Mm. And so, well, we'll punish him. And so they said, from now on, Blue wren, you can fly no higher than the birds on the bushes on the plains. If you watch a blue wren today, you'll see he flies no higher than the bushes on the plains. When they see, and that's what our people look at difference. He's the only bird that does that because most birds take off and fly into the air, but they always look for the difference. And you always find one doesn't obey that rule, and that rule is the blue wren. He, he flies only as high as the bushes. And so you see this this variance on a theme. Yeah. And you see that, you know, you see all the birds putting their beaks in the water. And there's one bird that doesn't do that. Yeah, you so that's what, you, you remember it because it's different. The bird is different. He reacts different. He doesn't do like all the other birds in the real sense. There he's trying to kid that he could fly the highs, but in the reality, he's, he doesn't fly high. Mm. He flies as high as a bush. He, he fl only flies to the height of, what, five feet or whatever. He got yeah. on a tech like, about two metres when he was talking modern terms. But anyway, so you can see that's what our people pick up these variations on a theme. Yeah. Why does that bird do this? Why does this thing do that? Why is this so? And then they it's make novelty. a story about it, the novelty of it. Not only that, you'll remember it and you'll see that all the birds don't do the same thing. They don't all fly high. Some like birds fly higher than the others, and and so, and when you look at how high the eagle flies, you might have, you know talk about the eagle. And so everyone has their own birds and what they do, and and so we all do that. We all watch different birds and for different reasons, and 
and you see the different skills. I mean, those eagles, I mean, they've got magnificent eyesight. I mean, they can be thousands of feet in the air and they pick up a mice running on the field. It's just, they just swoop down and you think, wow. See, that's the eyesight, isn't it? You know? So you see things like that. And so you, you, you read stories about that and you look for them. See, see, when you start on this venture, you start reading things and you think, well, I'll be blown, you know. It makes me think also of what you were saying before about when, you, when you're in a place, you're sensitive to what's going on in that place. And so that's partly about eyesight. Yep. But it's, it's not just eyesight, is it? No, it's really, it's about the knowledge of all other things, you know, and you're thinking, what's that animal or thing doing different from what's something else? Mm. And you're comparing and you suddenly think, well, oh, that bird doesn't fly very high, you know, mm. you pick it up, see this variation on a theme, yeah. see, because otherwise you never know, do you? Yeah. See, because you don't look for difference and you, you just want to look for sameness. Mm. See, because a lot of things are same. Because when you look at it, most of the birds in the hill fly high, don't they? Mm. And yet one bird doesn't. See, and you, and you see that how many people know that? And so you see, we need to look at it, life in a different way. And that's what our people are good observers, because they learn to do this in a different way and for different reasons. And, and it helps solve a lot of problems in different ways. And see, some of it, you, you can't do it in other ways. We found that out. We watch other people, you see what they do, and you think they're never going to get there because you know what the way they're thinking, and and it's not going to work. And so we can do things that the other can't do because it's a different form of observation. That's what even I said to a conference once. How can you talk about the environment if you don't know how it's observed? Yeah. See, people don't get the first step right. The people to look at the environment should learn to observe first. Well, how do they learn to do that? Well, it'd take a long time, wouldn't it, to learn all the lessons? Because really you should start when you're very young and pick up all these stories and, and collect it all yourself. That's it. it needs to be in the culture, doesn't it? It has to be in the culture. Yeah. And see, a lot of things, they're waking up. See, even I go to university and even they say people don't think properly, you know. A lot of people do because there's always people that can jump the hurdle and mm. go the second step. But they're not, they're not always a large majority, though. They're only like the privileged few, isn't it, that pick up some of these things. And so you'll always see that. Every culture will have people that, you know, see things a bit better. That's why you can invent it. They can see things differently. Mm. See, and they just bemuse you how they can think about what they're doing and come up with the, the theories they do. They just mind-boggle you because they're people that are doing that thing outside the square, lateral sort of thinking and mm. other stuff. And so that's what we all admire that. We all think we're doing it, but really we're sitting on the shoulders of all these people that yeah. have led the way and told us things that we had no idea about, you know? Yeah. And so you have to read about them, and that's where it's very useful to read about all these skilled people and what they do and how they come to those conclusions. So you don't want to see how... The, you don't always want to see the result. You want to see how they got there is the important issue. Mm. And I, I've learned to look at that, and you go, wow. The process they use is very interesting. And, and so you see what's happening is, you know, even with athletes, you know, you suddenly think people, why do they got the skill? Well, they develop a training method of their own that outmaneuvers all others' training, you know, in certain areas. And I've seen that. I've seen blokes do that. And I think, wow. Because when you think, I said, how do you do that? And he said, I'll tell you what to do. And, I, and when they tell you and you do it, you think, 
Well, that does improve you. Mm. They tell you little tricks and you think, oh, I'll be blown. And so that's what makes life very interesting, how people train. And that's what you'll find about all sportsmen. See, you read about Bradman, he, he hit a, a golf ball against a tank stand. Mm. Well, that gave him a high hand and eyesight coordination. So you can see the, the, where it comes from, where his skills start. Mm. And so he's done a training method, which is really outstanding. Mm. And they all do that. They, all of them I've seen have all got these training methods that are very good and uh, ahead of the field sometimes. And then you suddenly see the world picks up on this and they all do it now. Yeah. They all read the stories that someone's written and they pick up the essence of it and they all do it. And that's why you get a lot of sportsmen who, Pretty equal now because they're all doing the same training method. They all do, you know, sports science, and they all know the things you can do and you can't do. And mm. they can look at your feet and tell you when you can jump now. Which is, see, you would think about things like that. But it's very specialised now, isn't it? Well, that's yeah, get special. They see, they get learned to look at. It. See, yeah. you learn to look at everything. Yeah. You think you, if a person jumped, he jumped with his feet. Well, look at the feet. <laughs> And then see what the difference is. And mm. so you see variations on the themes. That's how you start, isn't it? Mm. So you start with a premise and then you build on it. And so there it is. It makes life interesting how you can look at things in different ways. Well, yeah, look, um, listening to that, I, I, I always come away looking at things differently when I talk to you, Uncle Lewis. So well, that's what so people can learn to do. They learn to do it themselves, you know. Yeah. So we, we're finished on that, then, now. Eh? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, that'd be great. Good night and good good listening. <laughs> <laughs>
the the kind of almost futility of that when you try it, it doesn't quite work out you reminded me a little bit of um the way i relate to music or rhythm more specifically that is when i try and count rhythms um in a conventional kind of sense i actually lose my sense of rhythm <laughs> and and so i don't it might not be a good comparison i'm not sure but my my sense of rhythm is known by my body yes yes one's a, one's a, a, a somatic knowing yeah and the other one's a, an intellectual kind of overlay that's right yeah it's always wonderful listening to uncle lewis mm. he's just got such a wealth of experience and information and understanding about those aspects and how they interrelate to each other what i really got from this was the importance of context to knowledge and understanding and uh, how he spoke about collecting information from all around mm. and the importance of interrelations and relationships in understanding you know that story with the willy wagtail about how when he was immersed in the context of his community and place, uh, the willy wagtail, the messages were really clear and in fact uh, could be understood even from quite subtle cues. Mm. And when he was then displaced into a new context, um, he was describing how he felt the willy wagtail had to really make a hell of a racket and go, pay attention, I'm trying to tell you something here. Yeah. Um, that, that was, I guess to me, said how that in order to be heard the in a novel circumstance sometimes the message might need to be stated more overtly or loudly and that and sometimes in a new circumstance that information can be lost absolutely yeah i think one of the things about knowledge in the natural world is um the its context is created by experience and observation and the the, the external world the the actual world that we live in, the, yeah. the sun, the rain, the wind, the, the creatures, everything in it um, is constantly in motion and constantly changing. Yes. And so the experiential knowledge of that is dependent on, upon developing an understanding of patterns of what's normal for that world, normal yep. in inverted commas, and what, what are the, the normal changes that occur yeah. and um, what is novel and new and signifying that something's happening that perhaps is out, outside the normal purview of experience and might require our attention. Yeah. Whereas our constructed worlds are far more stable and static and yeah. boring and dull, really. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that that's actually, I'm glad you said that because I, I, I think it sort of heads to where I was trying to go in that patterns. Um, well, I was just thinking about, so there's something Tyson Yunkaporta said about um uh, culture or Aboriginal culture as mirroring the patterns of creation or, or something along those lines. I'm not sure if that's a direct quote, but... Um, All our culture should do that ideally, I that's think. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 so I guess the difference or the, the comparison that can be made is patterns that are set in order to protect a particular type of relationship with the world um, that we have developed in the West that I guess we can look at as having emerged through agricultural, then industrial and then technological modes of, of social planning <laughs> and comparing that to essentially what 
you know, Aboriginal people have been doing for tens of thousands of years is the technology is is not oriented in that kind of. I was I'm tempted to say anthropocentric, but I, um, I'm not sure if it's quite the right word. Um, but it's it, it certainly uh, has a a reference to what we would call natural patterns or um, the, the the patterns of creation or or the living world um, in a way that we haven't sustained in in Western culture in the same way. Does that make sense? I think uh, it sounds to me like uh, what you're saying is uh, technology has enabled us to change things and the world in a way that um, outreaches our own and the world's perhaps, in my perspective, capacity to adapt. Mm. I think humans have always changed their world, but sometimes I suspect it's happened so incrementally that those changes may have seemed uh, like they were part of the world's natural way of being, whereas now it's really clear that it's us doing these things. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And doing it, them harder, doing them faster. That's doing right. Them too much. The pace of it is, and um, and I suppose the. I noticed Uncle Lewis said something quite simple, but it, it, I think it talks to um, what we're saying in, in that um, when you're sleeping inside, you can't see the stars at night. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there's a lot in that. Uh, we spend a lot from of time. The world. What's that? I think you're I think divorced, divorced from, the world. from the world, the actual world. Yeah. Not that our built environment isn't the actual world, but that's all predicated on a world that exists before it. Yeah. So we don't spend a lot of time outdoors now. Um, and indoors is protective. Um, and this is something we've talked about before. I think uh, that by protecting ourselves in some ways, we're shielding ourselves from what is helpful. Mm. Um, to actually feel safe. so And we're shielding ourselves from what we actually need to survive. That's right, yeah. The, the stuff yeah. we breathe and the stuff we drink and the stuff we eat doesn't come from inside. No. <laughs> yeah, that's quite right. Look, there's, there's probably... We don't originally come from inside. We don't come from inside. <laughs> well, we come from inside our mums. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> there's probably something to that, actually. You know, the environments we Lea set up. Lea. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't feel like I'm rebirthing you when I go out the door in the morning. But <laughs> Well, you're entering a wilder, a more unknown place than your home. That's true. I, one thing that was interesting to me that mm. Uncle Lewis said was about vision, like our actual physical vision. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, he was uh, um, being metaphorical when he was saying, you know, Aboriginals have got bionic vision, but he was being yeah. literal when he was saying, they've got great vision, yeah. really acute, normal, outdoor, long-range vision. Yes. And our context and behaviour actually affects our physical development and our physical vision. Absolutely. And our physical senses are what informs us about our world yeah. and hence our worldview. And if that's compromised or, or diminished or significantly altered from the, its capacity to evaluate the real world by living in this artificial world, mm -hmm. well, that's profound in its yes. impact for us as individuals and for society, yep. for the actual world that we live in, given that we have such powerful impact on it now. Yeah, that's right. So we get a sense there of 
not knowing what we don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. We're, we're, it's like we're blundering, blundering around in a self-imposed darkness. Yeah, that's right. So there's some, there's much that has been forgotten and little echoes of, um, of reminders, I guess, that come through from what Uncle Lewis told us. Um, there was so much in that interview and it, and it went so fast. I'd, um, I, I couldn't keep up when I was listening to him. I wanted to stop and... Yes, yes. Yeah. Just pause, pause. That's Just let me right. get my head around that. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was thinking back to his message about the willy wagtail and how something that is knowledge in one context can be incomprehensible or hard to even hear or understand in a different context. Yeah. And it's almost like a kind of experiential language. Yes, yeah. And sometimes we need to, uh, uh, he, he said this, I'm really, now I'm paraphrasing something yeah. that he said, which was we need to just observe and to just do things. Yes. And and accept, Yeah. you know, to sort of seal down that kind of experiential knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that popped into my yeah, mind go on. was he was talking about how uh, the people were observing these differences in animals and uh, then creating a story yep. to um, cement that knowledge yes. and, uh, and to pass it on. Yep. And that, to me, related to how interested he was in reading and finding out about skilled people and about finding out how they do things and about their process of approaching things okay. and how the value of those observations and then constructing a story, that, that's, that's a new thing, that's a novel thing. Yeah. But novelty and inferential thinking is really valuable in the solving of problems and that's where those things connect, connected up to me. Yeah. By making these observations and creating a story, yeah. um, there are inferences being made. And when you've got a, a situation that needs to be solved, you've really got to find something new. And that's about inferential thinking. Okay. So that's a cultural embedding of that style of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about, I guess, the novelty in terms of uh, mnemonic, I guess, as mm. well. And, the, you know, it's, it's, novelty is always an important way of, when a used hook through that story. Your brain is attracted to. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, so. There's a lot in stories. Um, one of the things that I thought of when he was talking about that aggressive um, hey over here, yes. Willy Wagtail thing, yeah. I had an experience with a Willy Wagtail um, <clears throat> in Glen Bar, which is uh, kind of a retreat centre, yeah. actually, which I found out since the, is, is known for spooky things. I didn't know that right. until fairly recently, but uh, there's a bit of a spooky That's thing going on there. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, so I was walking along the, the creek. It was a dry creek bed. Mm. And this woolly wagtail followed me the whole way, just sort of mm. zipping around. And it was obviously uh, following me for some reason. And mm. I didn't know why. But eventually I came to this beautiful kind of rock pool um, area in the creek that um, there was some sun shining through the gums and I lay down on this large rock mm. and Willy Wagtail came up to me and I've never seen a, a Willy Wagtail do this before or since. Um, he did this kind of... He flew towards me and then 
as he came within inches of my face, mm-hmm. he would arc upwards mm-hmm. um, and sang a very specific little song, mm. um, which I can't remember. Um, <clears throat> and he did this two or three times at least, and it was very weird. <laughs> Um, and he was trying to tell me something that was obvious mm. and it may well have been just go, <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Um, but, it, you know, who knows? Oh, what you're describing is what I've seen Willy Wagtail do to my cat crossing the yard and uh-huh. he would actually peck the fur on the cat. It was fuck off. <laughs> no, 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 I've seen that. No, I know yeah, what you're talking right, about. That's yeah. not what this was. Okay. Um yeah, that's what it immediately made me think of. And my cat would—he knew the Willy Wagtail would come and be aggressive towards him, but he wanted to cross yeah. the yard. And he would stump across with his ears down flat, going. Ugh. That's what it looked like the cat was doing, and the Willy Wagtail was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, look, I and I have seen a Willy Wagtail do that to mm. cats and dogs and other birds, I think, as mm. well, um, a number of times. This was quite different. Did feel like that? Yeah. Right. Wow. Um, no, look, I'm. I'm, I'm Prepared to uh, accept that it might have been a, a go away kind mm-hmm. of signal, um, but um, but the, no, the motion and the behaviour was unique. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I wonder if you were there for longer and were to do that each day at the same time, it would come to accept your presence and it would change its behaviour, maybe or not. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what you're picking up when you're outdoors and. Uh, Connected with the sky, the soil, the stars, the wind, perhaps the ocean if you're near the sea, or the watercourses. But that's a whole literal wild, wide world. I meant to say wide, but it came out wide. (laughs) World of information. And when you're indoors, it's very closed off. And I was going to say, closed environment makes potentially for closed mind. But then I thought, that's actually really not entirely true because there are many people who, you could say, live in a closed environment, perhaps particularly sometimes when people have got a compromise of a sense, a particular sense, say if you are blind and were to spend a lot of time indoors and yet there are people in those situations who've had the most extraordinary wide-ranging minds because they've been unconstrained in a way by their environment. Yeah. No, um, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the idea of the dieta. Have you heard that term before? No. So I think it's a South American uh, indigenous practice um, and it's about obtaining knowledge from plants Mm. or finding the application for the plant through um, listening, through getting to know the plant. Mm. And so it it involves going indoors, Mm. fasting, kind of sensory deprivation and sticking at that for days if necessary so that you're receiving, and I I have no idea how that works, Mm. but at some point you're receiving information about what that plant can be useful for. Do you have to ingest the plant? I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. That reminds me a little bit of a druidic incubation, which is about uh, finding solutions to problems, but also was taught originally to the younger people when they were doing their bardic training. Um, 
you would have to deliver a, a poem on whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way to, I say write because I come from a writing culture, but the way to develop that poem or make that poem would be to go into a, a cell, yeah. or like a confined space in darkness with your head wrapped up in cloth with a stone on your chest and stay there for 24 hours. So, again, it was sensory deprivation. Mm. There's darkness and there's this one uh, sensory input, which is this weight on your chest. And mm. while you're there, uh, it's re- spoken about receiving inspiration, but you're, you're making this poem and you, you come out and you recite what has come to you or what you've created, depending on how you want to view it. Yeah, okay. And there's but... a lot of stories, similar things of... Uh, Another way of doing that was to uh, wrap yourself in a bull's hide yeah. and uh, wait for inspiration. Yeah. No, and then I'm, I'm hearing echoes of initiation or shamanic practices um, in other cultures through that, involving mm-hmm. caves or, or sitting in holes or creeks yes, or yes, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and, and including coming out with a song. I mm, know that's something. Right, yeah. Um, I think that. Uh, is practiced in Lakota culture. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I, I suppose that speaks to the, the wild within and the wild without. Um, and <laughs> uh, um, you, you can't get away from it. It's always there. No, you can't. Um, you know, it's probably even on Netflix if we tune in. Um, so that might be a good place to leave it. I, how do you wind a podcast up? What do you say at the end? That's all for now. (laughs) That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Get out there in the wild.